Hey there, this is Cam Roundy at USH Med Student, and two students here today to do a podcast about anticholinergics. Let's go ahead and do some introductions. I'm going to start with you, Dave. Tell us uh, who you are and how you ended up here. So my name is Dave. I'm a third-year medical student at Rocky Vista University. Um, my primary interest is in psychiatry, so I actually requested to be with Dr. Roundy. You're kind of lost if you requested to be with me, but thank you. I'm flattered, totally flattered. And uh, Christian? Yeah, Christian Devereaux. I'm a fourth-year med student from the Idaho College of Medicine. Um, I'm emergency medicine bound, but I had a uh, brother-in-law who rotated here, really enjoyed the experience, uh, came highly recommended, so that's how I ended up here. Now, uh, tell us how you, well, first of all, I think it's fair to say that uh, sometimes at different times in medical school, things can be a little bit stressful. Absolutely. Yes, sir. And this rotation was stressful, I think, for you. Yeah, we've got match coming up in about four days or so. So uh, you could say that. Yeah, And I think at times I made it more stressful, but not across the board. No, I, I wouldn't say you made it more stressful. It's just kind of the, the nature of the beast, we'll say. Yeah, I, I think it is. Uh, in any case, we wish you luck. Where do you hope... Uh, I better not ask you that question because you'll match and then this will be like uh, a recording of you know what, what didn't work out for you. But uh, hopefully you match and please let us know where you match when you're done, okay? Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, so this topic, you were originally looking at some topics that your brother-in-law Cam tackled and maybe adding to those. Uh, but I think we, we did a pretty good job with those in the past. I don't think you found a lot to add to those. You're nodding your head yeah. for those of uh, for those listening in <laughs> who can't see, um, and so we started to get uh, near crunch time, and I said something along the lines of, "We have to do an easy topic," and the one I assigned you might not have been so easy. Tell me about it. Yeah, so uh, kind of got blinders on with with my other project but uh, thank you for the the recommendation and your patience and and uh, guidance in that aspect um, so today's topic though I think is a fairly fairly very interesting topic um, anticholinergics and their influence on cognitive decline and potentially some impact on uh, dementia in the elderly so let's see where this goes now test questions themselves let's let's tackle the high yield stuff right off the bat I think uh, first of all, uh, I'm going to do this very much out of order, but one of you put together, and I've, I've got information from both of you here. We didn't spend as much time talking about this podcast like we do before some, and so we'll, we'll kind of see how this rolls out. Um, there is a mnemonic, a memory device of some sort. Yeah. You've got it here. It starts hot as a hair. Do you want to go through that yeah, with us? Yeah, so thank you, first aid. Um so anticholinergics, you know, typically they'll, they'll give you the mnemonic, uh, hot as a hair, blind as a bat, full as a flask, mad as a hat or dry as a bone, and uh, red as a beet. And I'm, I'm sure there are some others that I'm missing, but these are, um, from what I remember seeing on tests and things like that, these are the, the most commonly um, kind of tested side effects of anticholinergics. So. Now, just, just so that we know what commonly used anticholinergics are, um, Dave, I think you put that together. Yes, I did. Um, so the uses that we typically attribute them to outside of psychiatry, um, you could treat urge incontinence or detrusor instability with oxybutynin or tolteridone or tolteridine. Tolteridine, I think, is how D they used to say yeah. it back in the day. Yeah. Oxybutynin is also indicated for hyperhidrosis or uh, excess sweating. Um, diphenhydramine has been used off-label for a while. Um, it's mostly a Histamine or H1 blocker, but also has anti-muscarinic effects, and that's to treat sleep. Scopolamine is an M1 blocker that's been used for vestibular nausea um, prophylactically. Atropine can cause pupillary dilation in the ophthalmic environment, or it can increase heart rate, and that's been associated also with significant cholinergic toxicity. Uh, Vericuronium or succinylcholine are used as um, Neuromuscular agents, blocking yeah. agents in surgery. Um, this one you'll probably have to help me with. I think it's meclamine. Meclamine is a ganglion blocker used in research. And I'm presuming that's to block sensory pathways. I don't know the answer to that at all. Yeah. 
And then glycopyrrolate is also used um, in surgery during anesthesia to decrease salivary or tracheal secretions. I think we also see that used quite often in uh, end-of-life care where secretions are difficult to manage by the patients. I don't know. I, th I think what you provided, though, were the on-label uses of those primarily, right? Yeah. So uh, let's talk about a STEM question. Uh, I think you put that together, Christian. Yeah, so um, a couple different options as far as STEM questions go. One common one uh, will typically center around, you know, an elderly patient taking a whole bunch of medication. So you've got polypharmacy kind of playing in. And they'll kind of have some of those symptoms above, maybe a little altered, um, dry, hot, urinary retention, things like that. And then they'll give you their medication list, and uh, among those medications will typically be um, several anticholinergics. And uh, they can either ask, you know, what, what is the diagnosis? They can ask you about the treatment. Um, so kind of a lot they can do. They can also talk about, like, intentional or accidental overdoses in children. That's another one that I've seen uh, fairly commonly. So, and, and what is the diagnosis then? So anticholinergic toxicity. And the treatment? So on the test, it's going to be uh, physostigmine. Um, when I was researching, it kind of seems like there's a little bit of, you know, back and forth on that as to if they really need it and things like that. But as far as your tests go, uh, physostigmine. Yeah. And probably withdrawal of the anticholinergics. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, let's suppose that somebody comes in and you have, they're reasonably stable, but they're clearly uh, still in toxicity. How do you, what's the management thinking if you're in the emergency room since you're going in ER? Yeah. Well, I want to hear the ER version of this. Perfect. So, you know, ER, you're always going to look at ABCs, airway, breathing, and then circulation. Um, and then in order to monitor those, you're going to get your safety net. Uh, monitoring vitals, things like O2, SAT, um, and uh, just get them hooked up, blood pressure, things like that. So pretty pretty straightforward as far as the, you know, the observation and management in that aspect. ABCs? ABCs, yep. Seems like I should be able to remember that by now. Uh, now we talked about medications that are used, anticholinergics that are used outside of psychiatry. There are a handful of medications that uh, seem to have a fair amount of anticholinergic properties in psychiatry. I'm, I'm just going to throw those out very quickly. TCAs, doxlamine, um, first and second generation antipsychotics, depending on their binding profile, may. Uh, a couple that surprised me that you guys have listed here, furosemide, some of the beta blockers, some calcium channel blockers, right? And um, if you live in uh, St. George, especially in the Ivins area, which I think, Dave, you did for a couple of years. Yeah. You know those great big green flowering plants that have great big white beautiful flowers on them? You know what they call that? Is it belladonna? Jimson weed. Oh, Jimson weed. Yeah. Okay. But uh, that will give you one impressive uh, uh, anticholinergic toxicity if you eat it. And I think at one point there might have been problems with cows getting into that when yeah. there was more cattle down there. I also read about children abusing it. I, I wouldn't be surprised. I, th um, I think you have listed here, Christian, that uh, you'll find anticholinergics in drugs. And I think at times you might actually find people who are cutting drugs and adding anticholinergics. What did you read about that? Uh, yeah, so um, just kind of as an aside, so that, uh, you know, talking about the plant and everything, I had actually seen this on a rotation. Um, someone came in and they had a bunch of these symptoms and they hadn't taken any medications, but they'd been experimenting with smoking some of the local foliage. So I, I've actually seen this. It, it doesn't just show up on test. It's a, it's a real life thing. It too, really so. happens, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 It's um, easy to get your hands on it. And there is a buzz associated with anticholinergic medications where there were a number of times when I was working in the emergency room where we had people come in complaining of intense akathisia and we would prescribe uh, anticholinergics. And then we found out later they would walk out the door and binge use their month supply so but anyway go ahead I interrupted um, yeah so just going back to you know street drugs and things like that uh, it's really hard to know what you're getting these aren't you know regulated or anything by the FDA so who knows what what's getting cut into into those so um, that was kind of the point I was making with those now let's let's go ahead and tackle oh go ahead oh, I was just gonna say I read a CDC report back from 1995 that showed there was a um, 
a problem with heroin being cut with scopolamine because it makes it cheaper and I guess it must appear similar to heroin. And so there was a lot of ER visits with people coming in with symptoms you wouldn't expect of heroin. Interesting. Yeah, that's, uh, it's always interesting what shows up that's cut into to drugs. It's, it's kind of strange. It's a strange commentary. Uh, there are a lot of patients here who say, I don't want to put unnatural things in my body. I want to know what's going in. And yet those same patients really struggle when they go out in the community to um, use that same sort of logic or thinking when they're taking drugs that are often cut with uh, other substances. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, acetylcholine receptors. Now, I, I've looked at this a number of times, and the physiology of the receptors is fairly interesting to me, or at least the build of those receptors. Uh, you want to walk us through that, Christian? Yeah, I'll uh, give it a shot. So Dave here is our resident neuroanatomist, so if, if I misspeak, go ahead and feel free to help me out. But uh, basically, in its simplest forms, uh, acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter, and uh, it's, it's pretty ubiquitous within the body. A um, couple of different types of receptors. You've got the uh, nicotinic receptors and the muscarinic receptors. Um, from what I'm remembering from way back in the day, uh, you have like five types of the muscarinics. Um, the M1s, I think, are in the central nervous system and brain mostly. Two, I believe, is in the heart. Three is found in um, smooth muscle and like glandular tissue. So. so I have to admit it's been a long time since I've looked at this and I can't remember if I'd looked at the nicotinic receptors or the muscarinic receptors but generally speaking these are receptors that have um, two to four chains that are generally the same and then one chain that will change out uh, with both the nicotinic and, and uh, uh, muscarinic and I think the, the nicotinic receptors have seven different uh, chains that, that, that built the isomers of these receptors. Um, how do they affect dopamine? Um, so m my understanding, and once again, correct me if you need to, but so they're kind of um, opposing. So when, when one is inhibitory, the other is excitatory, and they kind of act in, uh, to, to balance each other out. Do you remember which is which? I would assume that uh, nicotinic receptors, when uh, when people smoke, they're buzzing that receptor, and that's pro-dopaminergic. Does that sound right? Excitatory. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, peripheral effects. So uh, once again, it's found pretty much everywhere in the body. Um, has effects in your eye from the. Uh, let's see which one was that. Blanking on that one. But it's in, you know, GI, GU systems, um, many of your glands, and affecting, like, sweat production, GI motility, things like that. Um, also has an, a role in your heart rate, blood flow, so um, preferably. A lot of regulation. Lots I think on. it's one of the first things we learn in medical school is uh, that autonomic system, right, and uh, how those are um, complementary or opposing or whatever the case might be be said most accurately. Uh, before we go into, I, I think, the heart of this discussion, which is uh, dementia associated with anticholinergics, I want to tackle a couple of uh, more high-yield things. So we've talked about, I think, a number of things that are fairly high-yield, right? Um, but now what I want to talk about is akathisia for just a moment. So one of the challenges we have is that um, Anticholinergic medications are also used in psychiatry. Some of them are intrinsic to the medication. For example, TCAs. Uh, many of our first-generation antipsychotics have anticholinergic uh, uh, aspects. I think those are usually the low potency, but I'm not sure that that's consistent, right? Um, so, so in this setting, when should we be using anticholinergic medications? So in terms of psychiatric indications that I found, um, one, which is sort of like a borderline indication between neurology and psychiatry, would be Parkinson's disease, and specifically Parkinson's rigidity. But I've also found that it can uh, help to increase mental inertia in Parkinson's disease patients. But probably the biggest indication in psychiatry would be managing what we call extrapyramidal symptoms, um, which tend to occur when patients are on neuroleptic agents though akathisia can be caused by other things other than neuroleptics, so it's kind of important to point that out. So I want to 
I want to focus in on those very specifically. So let's suppose that we have somebody that has an acute dystonia. Yes or no for an anticholinergic? The evidence I found showed that anticholinergics are helpful for acute dystonia. And um, there didn't seem to be a lot of debate or disagreement about that. Not that I found in the literature that I reviewed. So you may you may end up having a question on the shelf exam or your prep, prep exam work that says something along the lines of somebody who has had a large dose of antipsychotic medication, usually they're going to say first-generation antipsychotic medications, yeah. comes in and is having increasing difficulty breathing. How do you address this, right? And it is, I am Benadryl. And you do that very quickly, right? Don't wait around. Um, Akathisia. What is the evidence to use, mm -hmm. and, I, and I'm not talking about guidelines because I, I looked at some guidelines, and we'll talk about those in a minute, but what's the evidence that we should be using uh, anticholinergic medications for akathisia? Did you want me to divine akathisia or? Yeah, would you please? Okay. Um, or just extra pyramidal symptoms kind of broadly? So, so Dave, what I want you to do is just talk All right. as you feel move to do so. Okay, and, th and then I'll come back to your question. That'd be great. Um, so extrapyramidal symptoms, um, as I found it, were acute dystonia, which occurs within the first five days of starting a neuroleptic agent, and it's defined as uncontrolled muscle spasms, typically of the face, tongue, and neck. Following that, you get pseudo-Parkinsonism, or sometimes just called Parkinsonism, uh, and that can occur between one to four weeks in you would think of rigidity, bradykinesia, and tremor, so just like the symptoms you see in Parkinson's disease. And then we get akathisia, which can occur between 5 to 60 days, and that would be restlessness or uncontrolled desire to move around. Um, as it was defined to me, as akathisia kind of looks like a dance where somebody's moving in sort of a writhing fashion without so, so a goal in mind. I think tardive dyskinesia or hemiblismus, uh Let's see, there's, there's something else. Um, writhing fashion is actually code word for another condition. Oh, yeah. um, Huntington's. Second yeah. hands, Korea. Yeah, yes. Korea. So you want Korea to be really careful about uh, writhing. When you hear that, don't think of necessarily antipsychotic medications, yeah. but don't forget that either. So, so akathisia, I would say, is more the restless feeling that one feels in their legs. And so you might see purposeless walking. But generally what you'll see is somebody that feels that intense need to move their legs. And I once had somebody say to me, it feels like I have a monkey on my leg that I'm trying really hard to shake off. And I can't. It's just there hanging on. And I always thought that was a very fascinating description. If you talk to the patients on the unit, they'll take you, tell you that they just they have to walk. Otherwise, their legs don't feel right. So keep going. Go ahead. And then tardive dyskinesia, which can occur for months to years. And that involves involuntary painless movements of the face and upper limbs, typically. Um, so you're going to tell me now treatment for those, the role of uh, anticholinergics in each of those. I think we established there is a role in an acute dystonia. Yeah. What about a role in tardive dyskinesia? Tardive dyskinesia, I found um, no evidence for in the research review. And uh, you had brought up two agents with us the other day that are indications for tardive dyskinesia, which actually work through a different mechanism. So they're VMAT inhibitors, um, and one is uh, volbenazine. Valbenazine. Or valbenazine, and then deuterobenazine. Deutetrobenazine. Du very good. I'm, I'm very impressed by that. And those are specifically VMAT2 inhibitors, right? Okay. They're not, they're uh, selective VMAT2s. Um, I, I would also add that my reading suggests that anticholinergic medications may worsen tardive dyskinesia, not just have no benefit. All right, so acute dystonia, tardive dyskinesia, uh, tardive dystonia. I don't think there's a, a lot of information about that that I've been able to find. So if you have somebody that has like a leaning tower of Pisa syndrome where there's a, um, uh, a dystonia in the spinal column, you'll see people tilt, right? Or sometimes you'll see it in the neck. My understanding is the best treatments for that might be Botox, which I think is very fascinating. Yeah. Uh, let's go to... Which would be similar to how you treat blepharospasm, which is also a, like a dystonia of the eyelid. Very good. Or I think that's the movement of the idea, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, let's see. The next one would be akathisia. We saved the best for last. Now, yeah. my understanding is that a lot of people use anticholinergics for treatment of akathisia. What's the data for that? Um, 
In, in the review articles that I found, it, there wasn't very strong data to support that conclusion. I was intrigued that I read the, uh, I think it was the Canadian Psychiatric Journal guidelines, and they said, hey, um, there were two studies. One was with uh, two people or three people, <laughs> yeah. and we're giving this class one evidence for use. And the other one was with 28 people, and it's three times the dose that we use normally. And I was kind of like going, oh, this doesn't, this doesn't seem right. Yeah. And, and uh, so there's very limited data that would suggest that it benefits. And I think, we, I think you had a, a Cochrane review. What yeah. did the Cochrane review say? So their conclusion stated, for neuroleptic-induced akathisia, there's presently no presently good evidence for or against using anticholinergics to relieve neuroleptic acute akathisia. Um, and they also said the question of whether anticholinergic drugs are really more effective than placebo remains to be proven. Should a person be expressing or experiencing distressing akathisia despite other treatment strategies, a trial on anticholinergics could be warranted. However, close monitoring of progress and adverse effects would be indicated. It is uh, understandable if clinicians and people with neuroleptic-induced acute akathisia felt that treatment outside of a randomized control trial designed to inform others would be difficult to justify. Yeah. It, now, did, they, did this article uh, mention the data that has been collected on propranolol as a treatment for akathisia? They didn't specifically cover that. Okay, so, um, so I know that the article I looked at from the Canadian Journal said that there were six studies looking at akathisia with propranolol, that they had pretty good outcomes with that. I thought the data was quite a bit better. Yeah. And, and uh, what I don't know, and I didn't realize this today, is that some beta blockers have anticholinergic effects. So, so I think what I need to find out is if, uh, if uh, propranolol does, but uh, Christian's over there going, dude, it doesn't. I think that's what that shaking yeah. your head is. Yeah, so the, the two that I recognized were um, atenolol and metoprolol. And uh, let me check my list. So it, it is on the anticholinergic uh, cognitive burden scale. Um, propranolol is, but it's a level one. So very minimal Zero effect. So, so I think um, we've tackled a lot of parts of things that are really fairly high yield for the shelf exam, right? Um, but now what I want to do is I, I want to take a little bit of a different turn. If anticholinergics really don't have any good evidence for use in psychiatry in management of side effects from uh, from for management of side effects from antipsychotic medications, are we doing if we're not doing anything that's clearly good for our patients, is there a compelling reason? to not give these medications. Mm -hmm. now, now, before we even start, I want to I just say that um, they're associated with increased delirium. They're associated with increased death. They're associated with increased vascular events, so CVAs and uh, myocardi myocardial infarction. But that's not what we're going to talk about, right? There's just this really big data set out there about uh, trying to look at the long-term effect of anticholinergic medications on on dementia. I think, uh, let's see, you have an article listed by Fox, Richardson, and Sava, which I think was associated with some animals, but I'm not sure. Do you want to tell me about that, Christian? Yeah, so uh, this was a article in the study of geriatric, um, excuse me, the Journal of American Geriatric Society. And uh, they were looking in mice models and um, trying to, you know, come up with the mechanism for these proposed changes in cognition. And uh, their thoughts were that because of those M1 muscarinic receptors that are kind of widespread within the um, forebrain and other areas like that, um, they thought that by uh, kind of inhibiting those receptors, that was leading to the the, the cognitive decline. They also, there's a hypothesis out there that there's some anticholinergic related um, degeneration of brain tissue and things like that. Um, they also kind of postulated that there was maybe some of those uh, increased amyloid beta um, deposits within the brain that were increased with anticholinergic usage. So, so this was a long time ago, relatively speaking, right? So, so this was one of the articles that kicked off the whole, let's take a look at this, right? And, and what we saw after that were a number of studies that tried to figure out how do you determine what role anticholinergic medications may have in dementia, right? 
And and I thought there were so I, I thought there were a lot of challenges. So one of the uh, review articles that you had me read, I read through it and I thought, why? How do, how do we even know how they're categorizing things? Did that talk talk to me about that? Yeah. So um, several of the articles and studies that I had gone through didn't use any kind of scale or um, they just looked at any and all usage of anticholinergics. Some of them I thought did a little bit better job of kind of categorizing and fleshing out, you know, exactly how much anticholinergic medications were used. Um, so that, that meta-analysis that I believe you're speaking of uh, was one of those that could have done a better job um, kind of quantifying the amount of anticholinergic. Let me say it a different way. I think they tried to do a better job of quantifying that, but the studies were so different. Yeah. I, th I think what I was left with, um, what I was left with after reading that was all of these ways of looking at the possibility of dementia are so different that it's really hard to have a meta-analysis and say with uh, a great degree of certainty that anticholinergic medications cause dementia. Now, now let me add to that. Um, there was an article by Dr. Andrade, uh, 2019, and this seemed to be a kind of like a, hey, let's not get too carried away of making the determination that um, anticholinergic medications cause dementia. He said, look, deprescribing is not warranted. Right? Now, now I, I think we've taken the, a different approach to this point, which is, prescribing is not warranted, right? And now what we're trying to do is look at the, the deprescribing. He said that the issue is protopathic, and I said, what does protopathic mean? <laughs> <laughs> Did any of you guys know that before it was defined? Uh, oh, good. You, by, you guys both knew I didn't. You guys are just saying that. <laughs> um, now, so, so in all seriousness, protopathic is the things before the disease, right? And I, and I do agree that after reading the meta-analysis and looking at some of the studies that have been put together, it was really hard to try and sort out what happened before the illness of dementia and what role anticholinergics may have had that played in that. The other thing he said was um, there's really a lot of inconsistency between classes. Some, some of the anticholinergic medications are more clearly associated with this change that we're seeing than others. And the, the other thing I would add was that there was a... a neuropathological study done by Gray, which was one of the authors, I think, of the, I think we saw her name, Dr. Gray, show up in one of the meta-analysis that we looked at, but what they did was ultimately they looked at uh, neuropathological slides and they said, hey, we, we can't really find this difference. So, so, so there are questions out there. But what I think I took from this was well, there's somebody that says no in a compelling editorial, so clearly there's not a link. Instead, what I took from this was that I think that the study design and the most well-designed studies might be the ones that are most telling to us, most informational to us. And I think the one that I liked the very most um, was the article by Gray in 2015, which uh, was before the neuropathological article they wrote, but I think made a compelling case for there is something here that we need to look at. And, and if it's okay, I'm going to go through the way I understood this article, and then Christian, tell me tell me what you understood for from it or what you'd like to add. So so they did something that was called um, total. Uh, they did a total anticholinergic dosing um, model, and they called it TSDD, total standardized daily dose TSDD. And they said that 90% uh, of the TSDD really came from three medication classes. First generation antihistamines, and I think you mentioned those, that's like Benadryl and, what's the other one besides Benadryl? They have, for, in terms of first generation? First generation, I think it would, think uh, scopolamine, I think, and atropine would be the other first gens, I think, right? And, and we wouldn't see those very often, the others other than Benadryl. And then they said the other the other two that comprised ninety percent of the the big players in TSDDs were anticholinergics used in the bladder and uh, tricyclic antidepressants. And and they had consent from people that were older than sixty five. They did screening tests on this pa these patients to see if they screened positive for uh, dementia, 
and it's a they I think they did a decent job looking at the cutoff for sensitivity and specificity right there's still problems with it and once they found a, a cutoff what they did is they did a definitive test to see if somebody had dementia again uh, with the sensitivity and specificity they had which were both in at about 95 percent I'm aware that there's still challenges with that it's still somewhat of a coin flip it seems like um, but maybe not the worst coin flip ever and then they did validation testing and so with that they had over uh, 3,000, almost 3,500 patients with the median age of 74 that they de determined did not have dementia. And then they watched these patients over time, I think 10 years, right? And what they found was if you had a TSDD of between 1 and 90, your risk of developing dementia was 0.92, your relative risk. I'm sorry, your hazard ratio was 0.92. If it was between 91 and 365, by the way, I didn't find how they categorized this uh, TSDD, and I assume it was based on anticholinergic binding, but um, maybe that's something you'll explain to us in a minute, Christian. Then your hazard ratio was 1.19, and obviously as you go up between the uh, various um, dosings, uh, you get up to 1.54 ultimately. Now, I thought they did a nice job saying we also are trying to exclude other factors. So no APOE4 uh, difference, we looked at that. No sex differences, no age effect, no smoking effect, no exercise effect, no stroke effect, no heart disease effect, and no depression effect, right? They did, uh, they tried to determine if these were the better explanations for those kinds of findings and they said we didn't find that and so I, I think when Dr. Andrade is talking about hey you know we're, we're not looking at the protopathic issues I felt like this this article by Gray said hey there's something here and there's some increased risk of dementia and, and I, th I thought it was very well written and, and at the end of it as I was looking through different articles I think I was left with the idea that uh, one of the article titles that I saw might make some sort of sense which was Anticholinergic prescriptions are healthcare professionals the real burden, <laughs> which I thought was very fascinating. So, um, what would you add to the various studies that you read to to in augment what what I just mentioned with uh, the article by Gray in 2015 and and her group uh, regarding the cumulative effect of strong anticholinergics? What would I add? Um, I don't know. That's an interesting question. So I, I feel like with with a lot of these populations, you know, one of the issues that I kind of kept running into was there's um, uh, a little bit of bias, selection bias involved in that, and I don't I don't know how you're going to really um, reduce that. I mean, you're looking at you know these these uh, anticholinergic drugs and their effect on elderly populations, and you're kind of I mean. It's hard to avoid all the confounding um, variables, variables and things like that with, within these populations. Yeah, I think that's why I liked the Gray study so much is because I felt like they did the best job I had seen at trying to eliminate the confounding variables. And and I don't I don't and again just just to give a sense of how hard this is. Did you you read the Pockwood study P A Q U I D? Yes, right? sir. So this is the Le Chevalier, Le Chevalier uh, Michel study from 2014, and I believe his or her group, I wasn't sure uh, pronoun for this person, it might have been her. Um, tell me about the Pakwi study. Yeah, so um, that's some kind of portmanteau of a bunch of French words that I'm not going to attempt to pronounce. <laughs> but, you know, basically this was a um, fairly large study in southwest France. They had um, almost 2,000 patients, I believe, um, but they wanted their patient population to be above 70. And they use several different um, types of tests to kind of evaluate and uh, um, their patients at a baseline. And then they would follow up, I believe, uh, also at home one at one year, three years, five, eight, ten, and thirteen years, um, or maybe fifteen. Was oh, no, it was thirteen, wasn't it? Yeah. What I do know is they read it from about 1989 to about 2004, yeah. 2002, something like that. Yeah, yeah. that sounds right. Um, so basically they found that um, about 13 to 14% of their patients had been using at least one anticholinergic drug and around 6.5% were using more than one. 
Um, and in this study, they kind of took the position that the use of these anticholinergic drugs was resulting in uh, a decrease from their baseline um, testing in, in those various tests uh, that they put them through. Mini mental status exam, um, Benton visual retention test. I'm not familiar with that one. I wasn't either. Um, I think the last one was the Isaac set test. Yeah. 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 So in in any case, they they found that there was a, uh, a decrease um, in their patients that were using the anticholinergics. So a, a a decrease in cognition. Yes, sir. Yeah. Just to just to make that clear, um, I thought it was really interesting because I I didn't think that there was anything particularly strong that came out of the Pacqui study. I just thought it was very interesting that they had this population in France, because I think this is one of the earlier populations where they're looking at a geriatric population, right? I think, um, so I was so fascinated by the idea and how long ago it started, I was really hopeful that there were still running data from this and maybe had people now in their 80s, uh, not in their 80s, I'm sorry, in their uh, hundreds that yeah. might still be in this uh, data set. But like I said, they stopped it in 2004. There weren't studies after that. They did publish another study um, out of the Pacqui data set where they looked at the association between aluminum and silica in the drinking water. And what they found was a relationship between increased aluminum in the drinking water and dementia and a, incre a reduction in dementia associated with higher levels of silica in the drinking water. Hmm. So, so I, I think one of the, it speaks to this challenge of how do you look at so many different things over a lifetime and try and find some sort of uh, outcome. And, and again, I think the other challenge with this, and I mentioned this before, when we do neuropathological slices and look at this, we're not finding uh, a lesion that corresponds to the use of the anticholinergics. I, I did a number of different searches on Google Scholar and in PubMed trying to see if I could find anything that said uh, potential pathophysiological mechanism for this not there that I can find. You're agreeing with me. Yeah, not, not from what I was able to, to turn up either. So, You had me read one other article that I want to mention briefly. Uh, Piper, P-I-E-P-E-R. And I think this is important for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, I think uh, Dr. Piper, 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 P-I-E-P-E-R. I think, uh, and I think this was her as well. I think she did a good job sort of saying, hey, this is the breadth of what we've looked at so far, and it's not small. Uh, over 620,000 people have been kind of pulled into various different studies looking at the effect of anticholinergic uh, medications on cognition. And there, there is some difficulty in the language we're using. So not only did, I, I think, Gray do a great job in trying to figure out how do we categorize the patients, how do we do lead-in, how do we do prescription time, how do we uh, clarify the diagnosis, how do we screen and know these things. I think that was a great study um, uh, despite the limitations I mentioned. But Piper, I think, adds another piece to this, and that is there is a difference maybe between incident dementia, which is largely what these studies look at, right? How often does somebody turn into a patient without dementia to dementia over the space of a year? and cognitive decline and mild cognitive impairment. And I think the other part of this that becomes very difficult is that um, th there's a lot of data that suggests that anticholinergics have a clear effect on the cognition of patients that are in a geriatric, uh, th that are of geriatric age and perhaps sooner. Talk to me about cognition overall in terms of uh, use of anticholinergics, if either of you have that data. Uh, so, so from my understanding, like we're saying, that was just kind of looking at other studies that had been, mm -hmm. um, that, that was a, uh, yeah. Yeah. So they kind of took all of that data and were able to come up with, um, some odds ratios and things like that. So for dementia, they came up with an odds ratio of 1.2. Uh, so as I understand it, that's a 20% increased risk from the base population. Is that correct? Okay. I'm not, so hazard ratios, odds ratios, uh, I, th I think an odds ratio is a little clearer to me, and even then I have to always go back and, and look at it. So I will agree with you and admit that I didn't review it today. Perfect. Um, and then for cognitive decline, uh, they also said that that was evident. And um, as far as mild cognitive impairment, though, they, they were not able to find any, any differences between the anticholinergic uh, 
population and uh, their peers. Um, did you read any of the articles that look directly at if I take an anticholinergic medication, my my ability to process or think changes this amount this quickly? Did you did you read any of those for the acute effects, or were you focused exclusively on the long term cognitive? I was more focused on the more long-term chronic effect. I think I came across some of that stuff, but it's probably something that merits a separate podcast because I think it, it gets very complicated in terms of which specific cognitive functions might be directly and immediately affected by anticholinergics. You have one more study, the Raposi study, which was done in, in Italy. Now, I, I think we can go through that, or we can say, same story, different day. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, any highlights from the Raposi study that you want to point out before we move on, though? Yeah, one thing that I did like about this study um, was that they had classified their anticholinergics based on um, the strength of the anticholinergic properties. So they used a couple different scales, um, one of them being the anticholinergic cognitive burden scale and then the anticholinergic risk scale. And then when they were going through and figuring out all of their statistics as far as, you know, hazard uh, ratios and odds risks or odds ratios and things like that they compared each of those scales independently and together in order to kind of come up with those numbers so I felt like their um, their use of those scales was was something that those other studies could have incorporated so. it makes sense how, how does that relate to the TSDD the total daily dose of the, the total systemic daily dose I still can't remember what standard TSD, standard daily dose standard right daily dose. how did that correspond to a TSDD or, or was it just a completely different Completely idea? different scale from what I understand. So in this, they had taken um, some common medications and they had ranked them. Um, for example, some class threes, uh, meaning they have the highest anticholinergic effect would be things like amitriptyline, atropine, benzotropine, um, and then some of our antipsychotics, you've got cotiapine, uh, trifluoperazine, things like that. So it's kind of gives you a little bit more of an idea of, okay, is this a, a really serious player in terms of anticholinergic effect or more of just a mild? And see, and that's, you know, and that's what I thought I understood the TSDD was, but you're saying that the, I'm sorry, you're saying the scale that they used in Raposi is different how? Because they didn't look at the standard dose, I believe. It's similar ideas, but just different. Uh, different name for it, and, and maybe sort of a scale that, just a different scale. In other, it sounds like what they did in the Raposi study, which I didn't read, was that they did a better job of describing that scale, whereas the TSDD, it seems sort of like voodoo to me. Agreed. Yeah. Okay. That's, 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 all right. That's where we're at then. I think I, I think I felt comfortable understanding where you're going then. Um, what have I not asked you guys about that you'd like to add at this point? So uh, quantifying kind of anticholinergic burden is difficult to do, it seems like, from the research that we've looked at. Uh, I saw a Taiwanese study that looked at the ARS, the ACB, and a drug burden index, and they were looking at 116,000 people age 65 for a 10-year follow-up period. So just a couple? <laughs> just Yeah, just a few. Is it like small sample size was a cited limitation of the study. Um, <laughs> And the, the strongest, most consistent dose response occurred with the ACB as a measure that showed uh, an increased association with four specific adverse outcomes, ER visits, hospitalizations, um, fracture-specific hospitalization, and incident dementia. And that showed the biggest um, risk. It went from 3.13 to 10.01. And was that an odds ratio, hazard ratio, standard mortality ratio? I was under the impression that it was an odds ratio, but okay. now you've given me some homework. I, no, I, don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, I think that's one of the, the, the drawbacks of being attending. You can't ask an honest question without having somebody feel like they're being given an assignment. Um, so, so I think that's against, it, now remind me what an ACB is. Anticholinergic. Um, burden, 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 ACB scale. Yeah. And, and that also tried to divide things based on how they felt, how potent the anticholinergic load was from a specific medication. So it got to the heart of um, some of the criticisms that Dr. Andrade had, which were, were lumping all of these medications together. I, I think, yeah. that, and I think proto, proto, 
protopathic issues still aren't well addressed, but at least we're looking more clearly at, I, I think they were in the 2015 study uh, by Gray, but, it, but I think overall this study continues to try and sort out some of the questions that are posed about are, are we really certain, especially since we don't have a neuropathological lesion that we've identified yet. Um, I, I'm, I tend to be of the mind that there is very little value to prescribing anticholinergic medications. Systemic anticholinergic medications outside of a very few settings. I think that uh, when the uh, medications that were used for spasmodic bladder, right, those were a remarkable advancement in medicine because they helped people be able to function more than they had before. And yet the drawback we didn't see at the time was the possible cognitive consequences. My understanding was that there were, uh, there was development of a series of um, antispasmodics that were not systemic. Essentially they were almost immediately filtered into the bladder. And what I don't know is if those were, uh, have a substantial, substantially different outcome. I didn't find research on that. Did you guys come across anything along those lines? I did not. No. So, so I think that there might be a role for these uh, non-systemic uh, antispasmodic bladder treatments. Right? Um, I think you did some research, Dave, on um, scopolamine in use of drooling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I try not to use it. I'll just yeah. tell you now. Um, what I've used instead are terazosin, which I don't think there's a ton of data for, uh-huh. but it seems to work. And I'll also use atropine drops under the tongue, which my hope is they do not become systemic. And I, it's funny you bring that up because I was going to say, if based off my findings, that's probably what I would use is atropine 0.15% sublingual. Mm-hmm. Um, this study, though the sample size was small, didn't show any um, increased risk of tachycardia, which is what we typically think when we dose atropine. Okay. And, and again, the other one that I like a, a lot, and I don't know why it seems to work, but it works for a lot of the patients that I use it with, and I'd like to have more data behind me, is terazosin, which gets me away from having an anticholinergic drop that could potentially cause problems. Uh, we've had some times where even though it's prescribed sublingually, those drops get put in people's eyes, and that's distressing for a little while, right? Yeah. And I also have posted a case about a scopolipine patch that was given to a four-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, which resulted in psychosis and hospitalization because his grandmother was repeatedly applying the patch in hopes that it would prevent sickness. Um, How did he get prescribed the patch, do you know? I didn't look into that as much. So it was um, the, the case where the patches aren't removed and you had an anticholinergic toxicity? And they also recommend not cutting those patches because it can release, the. it's an extended formula, and so it causes it to... The, the edge of the layer changes the way it's released then, huh? Interesting. I didn't know that. Um, other things that you would add that we haven't tackled that I haven't asked about? Um, one is I read in a lot of um, psychiatric settings or clinics where patients would abuse anticholinergic drugs, and because it's less thought of as you know something that's an illicit drug, it's easier for patients to exchange those in order to... Uh, get some euphoria. Um, there could be dysphoria or euphoria. And Depends then, on the person. And um, that seemed to be the, the biggest reported reason why patients were abusing it is one was to get high or to get a sense of euphoria. Mm-hmm. Um, it lifted kind of the negative symptoms in schizophrenics. So In patients with schizophrenia? Yeah. And so they, they noticed that it, they, it lifted some of their negative symptoms and then also some report of decreased depression. Interesting. That makes some sort of sense. Other things that I haven't asked about that you want to add at this point? Uh, just kind of jumping back to those studies, uh, I think it's kind of interesting to look at, you know, causation versus correlation. Um, just because this population is taking this anticholinergic drug doesn't mean that it is solely responsible or in any part responsible, I guess you could make the argument. So. Yeah, and I think that's the question I was going to pose lastly, unless there's something else you wanted to throw in, Dave, before I kind of go to my tie-it-up part. Yeah. Okay. So when when I said two weeks ago, or 24 hours ago, one of the two, <laughs> Christian, your choice ain't working. <laughs> Here's an easy topic. My impression was that the data was incredibly compelling. 
that uh, anticholinergics cause dementia. After reading the data, tell me what your thoughts are. I think that there just needs to be more studies done. Uh, I, I don't, I mean, there are studies that prove that it uh, is, is causative or correlated, and then there are some equally compelling arguments against it. So, um, yeah, I'm still thoroughly in the middle, we'll say. <laughs> How about you, Dan? Um, I'd say to any prescriber that's administering these medications, always be wary of the side effects, especially in weighing whether the potential risks are outweighing the potential negatives. Um, especially as those dosages increase, then there can be very significant detrimental effects, including coma and death. <laughs> bad stuff is yeah. yeah, kind of bad stuff. So, so I think the way I was left, so I, I asked you guys before I said something. Before this, the reason I said it was a no-brainer podcast was because I thought the evidence was so compelling that there is no clear benefit for use in psychiatry, with rare exceptions, that any risk of an increase or any increased risk of dementia just wasn't worth it. Where I was left, though, was a little bit different. I was well reminded of the appropriate places for use in psychiatry, right? I'm glad that we talked about those. I do know those, but I forget those. Uh, I, f I forget those when I think about what seems to have been this overwhelming onslaught of evidence that it is causative of dementia. Where I am now is somewhat different, and that is I'm still not sure that there are great places to use anticholinergics. In fact, something I think I learned today was that even though propranolol is first line for treatment of akathisia, mirtazapine might be second line. And I didn't remember that. I, I, I may have seen it before. If I did, I, I didn't know that. Um, but beyond that, if I, if I don't have a clear and compelling use for an anticholinergic, the correlation between anticholinergic use and dementia is enough for me to have a lot of pause. Now, now the part of this that I think I'm also left with is that I think there's good evidence that anticholinergic medications affect cognition immediately, right? That seems to be a clear case. And what's not as clear to me is if it simply unmasks dementia more quickly because of the cognitive effects, or if there is some pathophysiological lesion that we just haven't found yet that corresponds with dementia. And, and I'll be interested to see where that turns out. I think I'm still left with the idea don't use uh, don't use don't use benzodiazepines either if you can help it, um, but don't use anticholinergic medications unless there's a very strong and clear indication. I yeah. think that's where I'm left at, and and there are very few of those. And if there is a strong indication, I'll try and use the uh, medication that has the least anticholinergic burden, the lowest anticholinergic burden. Um, if I can avoid using systemic anticholinergics, I will, and go from there. That, that's sort of my take home. Um, anything that either of you would add to that? Yeah, you, it kind of addressed the treatments for akathisia and what tends to be first-line treatments. One thing I was reading is that um, trihexyphenidyl mm -hmm. can be used in some cases where, um, and this would be more relevant for neurologists, but in Parkinson's disease with mild tremor, um, it was shown to be of some benefit. Um, and I guess the indication would also be if there's akathisia in comorbid Parkinson's disease would be maybe a possible role. But. So I, I, I did see that. Now, interestingly enough, and this is now anecdotal, I'm going to walk completely out of the data, uh, the anticholinergic I've seen most abused is trihexylphenidyl. Yeah, that's what all of the, the studies that I saw. And I even found a study that showed, do we think it's because of the fact that it's so prevalently prescribed that it tends to be abused because it's more prevalently used, or is it that it's more abusable than other? And so it's sought after. So, so interestingly enough, I also think that uh, trihexylphenidate or trihexylphenidyl, um, I think that isn't as commonly prescribed now. Cogent, I think, has replaced that or supplanted that, at least in the United States. So if, if you're seeing that, I'm curious uh -huh. if that's uh, countries outside of the United States or if it was an older article. If you do have that answer, let me know. The, the other thing, um, I, I think I would add one other kind of, this is my final thought, and that is there was an article by somebody named Naryam who um, 
said, what happens when, after we give people anticholinergic medications? And what she found is in populations that, uh, geriatric populations, that a third of those people were placed on uh, um, cholinesterase inhibitors very quickly after that, almost a third of those patients. So gas and brake is a thing that I find uh, problematic. We sometimes see stimulants and antipsychotic medications. I find that problematic. Anticholinergics and procholinergics, I think, is probably equally as problematic. I recognize that they may be acting in different parts of the brain and that somebody that is more sophisticated than I might be able to use those elegantly together. But my, my initial impression is that's not where the general practitioner or the general psychiatrist should be. That's, that's uh, I think the word is anathema to me. Yeah. <laughs> Other thoughts along those lines? So my understanding, too, is you have like the tertiary versus quaternary. I mean, some of them do cross the blood-brain barrier easier, the tertiaries. So, so maybe, maybe that's for a more systemic effect versus... Versus central. Yeah. And are, are those the ones, I think the quaternary amines have a tougher time crossing the blood-brain barrier. That's correct. And those are the ones that, did you look that up while we were talking about this? The the antispasmodics, I think, that are quaternary amines might be the ones that replaced oxybutynin. And uh, they were really expensive when I was last looking at this. But that was 15 years ago or more now. So so I can't remember the names of, uh, is it, I, I think Tolteridine is the, brand name of oxybutin, but I, I don't remember at this point. All right, so so um, take home. Uh, I know we've kind of kicked around some of these ideas. I want to hear your, your last final take home from this podcast. Let's see, Dave, you're, you're the uh, sidekick in this podcast. This is Christian's uh, podcast, so to speak. You did, uh, For a sidekick, you actually had a tremendous amount of information, so sidekick's probably unfair. Uh, but final take home. It's fine. He's Batman. I'm Robin. <laughs> this This podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast. Um, I was just kind of blown away by, I mean, I feel like this is one of those things where it's brought up in medical school, but the all the indications that are potential uses aren't addressed, and all the potential side effects are also not adequately addressed. And I feel like maybe some of these medications are being used um, possibly without that entirety or, or you know, um, there's more to the story. Yeah, there's there's more to the story, and, and um, but I've seen these drugs widely used, so that's one of those things where it, it does have me a little bit concerned. But um, I await to see if there's more information regarding the dementia story as well. But I feel like time is going to have to be an essential element regarding that. Yeah. Again, I, I just don't think there's a compelling u- reason to use anticholinergics in many settings, and so I can cut back while I wait for the story to happen. Right, to see where it plays out. And I've still got to see the, the pathophys to, to be more convinced, but I, I can't be convinced to use them either. I, I like the line that you mentioned before. Uh, how did it go something along the lines of, um, something along the lines of, I can't give you any compelling reason to use the medications n- nor to stop using them. Yeah. So I, I think that's kind of what you're saying. And that was the Cochrane review. I like your take home very, very much. Christian? Uh, yeah, I mean, to go along with that, you know, we're aware that it isn't in, in certain medications, but it's also in a lot of over-the-counter products and things like that. So um, as far as these studies go, we're really not sure how much they're getting or if they're getting any at all. So <laughs> I think that adds another kind of layer to those studies that uh, maybe could be teased out in, in future can, studies. Can I just say, you just threw down a completely new co-founder that I hadn't thought about and hadn't read in the studies, but thank you. Not so, sort of. Thank you for <laughs> nothing. <laughs> I interrupted. Go ahead. Anything else you'd add? Um, yeah, I, I think that's pretty much it, Dave. Pretty much summed it up. So, uh, Gentlemen, I, I actually really enjoyed this podcast, as is the case always. I learn a tremendous amount in these. I think I felt like I had a better sense of where the literature is. I, I think there's strong evidence that something is happening that's not good for the brain. What it is is not as clear. Whether it's causal for dementia is not as clear. That is associated with cognitive changes is more clear. There are so many other things that seem to be uh, burdensome with anticholinergics, deliriums, uh, emergency room visits. Oh, and that little thing called death. 
um, seems to be more common in, in anticholinergic-treated patients, right? So, so I think there's a compelling reason whether dementia is present or not to go ahead and, and minimize anticholinergic usage. And uh, I really appreciate the time that you guys spent on preparing this. On that note, team out. Team, team out. out. <laughs>